What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Let's talk about adolescence. This term means different things to different people. But most would agree that it begins with the onset of the biological changes associated with puberty and then ends when a person has fully established himself or herself as an adult. And that usually occurs between the ages of 12 and 18. Beyond these structural definitions, other groups like psychologists look at adolescence in more complex ways. For example, Influential psychologist Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development describes adolescence as a series of increasingly complex psychosocial crises, during which individuals struggle to achieve individuality and to learn to function in society. Erickson believes that for adolescents, the need to form a sense of identity is one of the key developmental challenges for this period of life. To build the sense of identity, adolescents must acquire a sense of mastery, autonomy, sexuality, intimacy, and achievement. Each of these developmental tasks moves an individual towards the formation of his or her identity. What does this all have to do with literacy, you may ask? Well, the reality is that during adolescence, youth move through the developmental changes required of them by extracting information from a variety of sources, including parents, teachers, peers, and often books. That's where literacy makes an impact. For me, books in particular have a unique ability to allow readers to vicariously experience and learn from situations that they may or may not experience in real life. For adolescents in particular, reading is one of the literacy tasks that they engage in that helps them gain necessary understanding, that helps them to formulate their sense of identity as they work to discover their own place in society. Additionally, since all the developmental processes of adolescence focus on becoming an adult, young adult literature has a unique ability to connect with teens. This is why the central theme of most young adult fiction relates to becoming an adult and finding the answer to the question, who am I and what am I going to do about it? Adolescents who face many complex developmental tasks as they form their identities often read because they are growing up and they need guidance to help realize themselves. Because of this, we find here at Rachel's World that it is important to remember that a reader's choice of reading materials is often connected with emotional and developmental needs. What prompts someone to write? Is it because of a desire to share something, like a story or an experience? Sometimes a simple desire to write eventually leads to becoming a published writer. This was the case with young adult book author Jennifer Nielsen. In our program today, Nielsen talks to Rachel about her journey to becoming an author. It started with that simple, strong desire to tell stories. Jennifer Nielsen is a New York Times bestselling author. Her books include The Ascendance Trilogy, beginning with The False Prince, The Mark of the Thief series, and A Night Divided. Here's Rachel and Jennifer Nielsen. We're in studio with Jennifer today. Welcome, Jennifer. I'm glad to have you here. Oh, thank you. What a privilege to be here. 
Well, thank you for taking the time to come and speak with us. I am really excited to introduce you and your works to my listening audience because I have found such great pleasure in your writing. So I hope that they will too. So let's talk a little bit about just maybe how did this all start for you? What? How did you start becoming a writer? Was this something you were did when you were little or is this something relatively new? I think I was always writing. Um, I think every writer is always, you know, kind of creating stories in one fashion or another. What I didn't understand is that uh, writing was a thing for real people. I thought like to be, you know, to grow up to be an author, you had to be a dead guy because they all were. Or you had to live some super special life in some other part of the country. And it was a long time coming for me to really understand that's a real people choice, you know. So, you know, once I started understanding that, um, then just life gets in the way. You know, everything we're doing. Well, when it changed for me is after the birth of my first son. And so I quit work to stay home with him. And I was just doing the mom thing, which was awesome. But it turns out like babies are really boring. <laughs> like they sleep and then they just they don't talk back to you. They just stare and then they sleep some more. And, and I just felt like my brain was melting. And so I started reading books and reading and I was just going through them like crazy. And every book I enjoyed a little bit less than the one before it. And it wasn't that the books weren't good. It's that I was I was evolving really quickly because I was starting to see the structure of the story and predicting the ending. And I was starting to say, well, if I had written it, I would have done this. And one day it occurred to me the only way I would ever get exactly the story I wanted is if I wrote it. And that's where it began. I love that sense of being motivated to write because you wanted to tell the story that you wanted to tell. So what was that kind of story? What what was not satisfying you in the books that you were reading? I mean, what what did you want to create? How did that you know, it just came into the details, which is really where I think is the difference, you know, it, with somebody who chooses writing. It got into the details of, I would have said the sentence this way, or this phrasing would have been funnier, or, you know, I really saw the ending coming a mile away. It should have happened this way. And so it really came down to the details. And um, and it's not that I'm, you know, like somebody else will read my writing and say, I wish you would have done this. It's that we're all unique and individuals as writers. And it was about me figuring out in those early days, who am I in contrast to somebody else who's already published? So who are you? I mean, how would you define how would you define your works? Because you've you've added some quite some strong diversity to your works, particularly in recent years. So how would you characterize yourself as a writer? You know, it's funny because when I when I first released, you know, started releasing books, I'd get some pushback from librarians who would be like, where are we supposed to shelf? your books because it might be you know it's it's a fantasy but there's no magic in this book or it's a historical but it's in a made up world so you know and i got a pushback and so i have decided now i'm not a genre writer you know for the sticker that's on there i write danger I write danger. And so any – and you'll see that thread through anything I write about you've got a character who's in an extraordinary amount of danger with all of those odds stacked against them. So whatever genre that is, that's who I am. That's a really interesting thing to me because I think particularly in the world of literature today, and I would agree in your works, that we kind of cross genres. I think we don't have this sense anymore of this is this genre. They're so – 
developed in different ways. And so your first works, I think I would consider historical fantasy is what I would put them in because they're they're not fantastic and there's no magic, but they're set in a analogous kind of historical world kind of thing. So tell our listeners a little bit about your your first novel and how it came to be this wonderful work of historical fantasy. Are we talking about The False Prince? Yes, here? let's talk about The False Prince. The False Prince is, uh, takes place in kind of this crumbling kingdom. And there's um, a secret that is not known among the general population, which is that the king and queen and crown prince have just been all murdered. They're all dead, and there is nobody ruling the kingdom. And the nobles know once this word gets out, it's going to be chaos because everybody is going to be vying to be in charge, and this civil war is coming. One of the noblemen is a man named Bevan Connor, and Bevan remembers that the king and queen had a younger son, a prince, who disappeared several years early, and nobody's ever sure what happened to him. He's presumed dead. But there's just enough hope that remains. And Connor thinks, if I can go out in the countryside, scour the orphanages, and find a boy who looks like the missing prince, maybe acts like the missing prince, I can mold him into committing the greatest fraud against this kingdom that has ever happened. One of the boys chosen has no interest in participating in this fraud um, because it's treason. The problem is, if he's not chosen, he's going to be killed because now he knows the plan. So that is, there's no magic in the false prince, um, but it's a made-up world, which is where it kind of becomes a a genre-bender sort of a book. Which I love, because I think that just opens the world to more readers, right? It's it's the people that love the kind of fantasy elements and people that love the historical fiction elements. And and even some of this sense of realistic fiction of this true dangerous situation. um, And I think people listening can obviously see where the danger is in this book. So did you start with that question of danger or the problem, or did you start with a character? Um, in this case, I started with the character. There's um, The lead singer of the group Pearl Jam is um, a guy named Eddie Vedder. And Eddie Vedder once released a solo album for the movie Into the Wild, which is just a fantastic album. It's him and an acoustic guitar. And one of the songs on the album is called Guaranteed. And a line from the song says, I knew all the rules, but the rules did not know me. And that line just stuck in my head, and it just turned and turned in my head. And the more it did, the more I began to think about this character who knows exactly what game he's playing, but maybe the other players don't understand that all of these rules are being very quietly rewritten. So from the song, I had Sage, and once I had Sage, I knew exactly where the story was going to go. Well, and I think Sage is just an amazing character because he is thoughtful and plucky, and and he just has... Has this sense of I want to do what's right, but sometimes the rules aren't right, and and I really love that sense that he has this strong sense of morality, but at the same time he's willing to kind of break the rules to to get where he wants to go. So there's this this wonderful kind of sense of. Um, you know, not being this purely heroic, you know, white hat character that's going to have all of this, I am right 100% of the time, or I do things that are only in line with this very small sense. So did you think about that when you were writing Sage, that this was, there was going to be some of this ambiguity to it? I, I think what makes Sage a fun character is his complexity, 
because Sage is really he's his own opposite. So whatever trait he has very strong on one direction, he has it its exact opposite. So he is very very compassionate, but he can also be pretty cruel. And he's got a great sense of humor and at the same time he's very very serious and he's um he's very confident, arrogant and cocky. He's also super insecure. And and having Sage be on these extremes of two opposite emotions, that's, I think, where you get his unpredictability uh, because he he isn't going to necessarily do what everyone expects he will do, ever. And I think that's what makes the book exciting, that complexity, because I think characters that only have one note or, or only one part of a of a virtue or a characteristic tend to be boring. And so that's not the case with your books. But was that a little bit scary, right, to give this character that you'd come to love and that was living in your head for so long out to the world to become something else and to become developed in other people's mind? Was that a nervous experience for you? It was scary just because Sage can be such a brat and he can be so forceful and willful and sarcastic that I was like, are people going to just hate him? And then as this love started coming back from readers, I was overwhelmed by it. I had no anticipation that people would love Sage and and look up to him the way that they do. That I was not prepared for. Do you think now that um, you may have done something differently if, if you had thought that that would be the kind of reception you expected? Or do you think you would have kept it just the same way? I think it all would have unfolded the same just because Sage was so clear in my head. I don't think it ever could have gone any other way. Do you miss Sage? Sometimes. Sometimes. But I think, um, you know, as I continue to write, you know, every character that I'm working on at the time is the character that I love at that moment. And so everybody else, they're friends, you know, that we used to have and we miss. But it doesn't mean our current set of friends aren't friends that we love. I love that. And that's a perfect note to end on our conversation today. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a wonderful opportunity to visit with you today. Well, I so appreciate it. That was young adult author Jennifer Nielsen talking about what led her to writing books and about a recurrent theme in those books that has become her trademark. Next, Rachel talks to literacy learning specialist Marnay Isaacson, who offers tips to parents and teachers that will help struggling or reluctant readers succeed and enjoy their reading. Isaacson earned a master's in educational psychology and research from Bucknell University and a Ph.D. in instructional science and literacy education from Brigham Young University. Here's Rachel with Marnay Isaacson. We have Marnay in studio. Welcome, Marnay. Thank you. You know, one of the challenges, I think, particularly as parents and adults who are concerned about children, is we want them to be good readers, but some readers just struggle. And there's all kinds of re- reasons that readers mm-hmm. struggle. They they have language impairments or they have other disabilities that ha- let them struggle. Some kids are just not interested. So I think we're putting a huge category yes. there. But let's Talk a little bit about what can we do to help these kinds of readers. How can we make reading less of a frustration for this broad category of struggling readers? Well, they need support. Take turns reading. Don't expect them to go off and read the whole thing. Let's break it down and take turns, maybe every other paragraph. Or if it's a story, let's take the parts and read it. And you, parent, teacher, tutor 
with lots of enthusiasm and expression and make that text come alive instead of the way they read it so they can't get meaning out of it. But read it that way. Uh, And here is something really important to help them make a difference. Don't jump in to correct. I love that point because I think I was a struggling reader like this with my no dis- way. I'm I'm dyslexic. So so I had these similar things and it always bugged me when I was hesitating over a word that an adult would come in and tell me what it was because that just negated all of my ability exactly to, to do what I needed to do to learn they that word. They need to learn to process. So this is what I tell them, as I, I tell them to say blank in that hard part and read around it, but don't jump in and correct. In fact, if you find yourself doing that, do what I call radio reading, where you sit back as though you're listening to the radio so you can't see the text and listen as though you were, you know, you're listening to somebody tell this, read this story. And if they don't catch it and it's not making sense, then you stop them and say, Rachel, this is what I heard you say. And then you will repeat what they said. Does that – that didn't make sense to me. Does that make sense to you? Try that again. I still don't tell them what it is. I'm trying to build their metacognitive awareness of if it's making sense or not because if they are just – Looking at words and saying words, uh, they're not going to improve. Well, and putting some of the responsibility on the on the on the reader, on the student, on the child, as well, because I think sometimes when we correct them, all they hear is "Oops, I made a mistake." Yeah. "Oops, I made a mistake." And Oops, then they I made just want And then they shut down. Exactly. Totally shut down. So I like this concept of radio reading because it's more. I'm really not certain about this. Maybe you need to go, you know, can you help me understand this? So it puts some of the responsibility on them. So don't even look at the text. Remember that meaning making is what you're after. I've seen so many students who could read even flawlessly and not tell you a thing they had read. So they are defining reading as saying the words right. That's not what reading is. So comprehension I've talked about in other things, that before, during, and after. That absolutely applies here. Let's preview it. Let's get an idea what this is about. Let's make purpose of what we want to get out of this. That's all going to help comprehension. Um, uh, The during, stop often and say back what you are getting out of it. Uh, Asking questions and other things that you can do during to be sure you're understanding. And then the after solidify, say it back, review things, um, and that will really help your comprehension. So what about fluency? How, now how let's do we talk help, about How that. do we help with some of those fluency issues? A really fun way. I call it performance reading. I take a text that the child – it's important that it be something childlike to start with. And I often will just take a passage out of a really cool book. And it's okay if they've already read it. It doesn't have to be cold. So then we practice um, at, at this short, interesting piece by maybe even me reading it to them. I have often started that way. Then they read it silently, imagining how it ought to sound, 
And then they try to read it aloud. While they're doing that, I have a copy over here, and I will just mark the parts that I think are really good that they do and the parts where they kind of stumble. Then we'll analyze it, but I won't show them mine. I'll say, okay, what do you do really well? Oh, I agree. You did that so well. You did this, and that's what I heard. Where did you have problems? They nearly always can find them. I mean, they remember where those were. Okay, let's practice those parts. It might be a sentence. It might be a phrase. And we say it over until the child can say it well. But they improve dramatically and have a very positive experience. I think that that's key to all of this is having these positive experiences because I think particularly with struggling readers – They've either had some of this kind of instruction for comprehension or fluency, or they've experienced a text that has been a negative experience for them. And that's what makes them struggling readers sometimes in the first place, particularly those readers that don't have disabilities or, or cognitive problems that prevent them from reading. We know a lot about how attitude is developed in readers, and it is from experiences. If I have a lot of bad experiences, I it builds a negative attitude. But if we can change those experiences to positive experiences, that attitude is going to change. So what what are some other ways that we can build those kind of positive experiences, particularly with just text in general? What are some things we can do as parents to, to help our kids have positive experiences with text? Love to read yourself. Read to them. Read with them. Notice all the good things you see them doing. Uh, with their reading. Um, even think five to one, five positive things that you witnessed, and then just one thing to work on. And if they can identify it, even better, instead of you identifying it. Do and, we have time? Yes. Do you have a, a one last tip you'd like to give us? Yes, on on how to recognize and learn unknown words. There we go. Great tip to okay. end on. Yes. I like to make a word card and we categorize them as strangers, friends, and family. And we play games with them, and I'll do a flashcard thing. And if they get it right off, I put a check on it. Until it has three checks, it's still a stranger. But once it has more than three, it's now a friend. It's a word I'm quite familiar with and can do. And then once it has over six It's a family. And once they know those, I can even put that away and just bring it out occasionally to review. And so there are some fun things we can do. I call these word works, creative word learning. We're going to act out this word. We're going to draw it. We're going to use gestures and movement. We're going to think of funny ways to remember it, like Rhyming or exaggerations or silly stories about it. Um, Acting it out is always a fun one. Another fun thing is to take your friends and family pile and make crazy sentences. What I do is I'll have them from their whole word pile. I'll just have them randomly pick any two cards, not without them seeing it, just draw out. 
I put those two random words down, and they have to make a sentence using both words, showing that they understand what the word means. And some of those are so silly and fun. Um, Another one is, I call it situations. And I even have made up a bunch of these, like, your car stalls on the freeway five miles from the nearest exit, or... Uh, you weigh 350 pounds and want to lose some weight. Or this, your soccer team is playing for the championship. Just in a situation, okay? Then what they do is they, rand- they select a card, a word, and they have to create a sentence using that word correctly for that situation. That's wonderful. And there's no way you can do that if you don't understand the meaning of the word. I love that. <laughs> that That is a perfect tip to end on. There, there's just so many wonderful, playful ways that we can engage with reading and language with our kids, even if they're struggling or yes. even if they're having challenges. And there's lots of ways that parents can find those out. Thank you so much, Marnay. Literacy expert Marnay Isaacson, offering some great tips for helping struggling readers find more success and enjoyment in reading. We finish up the show today with Madeline Dresden, who is in the BYU English graduate program specializing in writing fiction. I talked with her about the contrast between writing for grown-ups and writing for young readers. I think that thematically... I have the same sorts of things in both. I don't shy away from from any of these kinds of topics that are on my mind and that I want to write about because of my past experiences. But definitely there is that level of how you tell the story. That is a big difference. And I think of Neil Shusterman, who wrote the Unwind Distology. He writes some very dark things. I mean, in, in Unwind, we have kids who are being pretty much dismembered for their parts as a solution to abortion, um, or he writes about kids who are have bipolar disorder, and so he writes about some pretty pretty dark um, themes and people who are in dark places. But in an interview, he said that he is conscious of the fact that these are for kids; these stories, and his kids are a part of his, him writing his story. He counsels with them, and he wants to make sure that parents feel that he is being responsible with these topics. So he doesn't shy away, but he is careful with what kinds of stories he tells and how he tells them. So I kind of take that as my personal philosophy, I suppose, to not change what I write about, just how. Um, And I think for me personally, that means maybe I can do more things in scene in an adult novel that I wouldn't do in scene in a YA novel. So if something bad is happening, maybe the the YA protagonist has had something terrible happen, but we're not there when it happens versus in the adult novel, I might have it actually happen in the book in scene to that person. And that's just a personal thing that I do, a distinction, but that's an example of how you can perhaps use the same themes with a level of responsibility regarding your audience. That's very good. Um, So really, there's some similarities between writing the YA novel and the, the adult novel. And, and you're saying that it's um, themes that maybe sometimes are hard to to look at, but with the young book, the young adult book, you're more, um, how would you say, respectful or, or about 
their level of understanding or their emotional or that kind of thing. And their needs, yes. Uh And their needs. That's very good. But I would say that in terms of language, um, that doesn't change in terms Mm. of my trying to be poetic or or trying to um, write in a way that is new and fresh. That doesn't change. Um, There's no concept of young adult readers not being able to understand higher level writing like adults or anything like that I I don't believe that that is true and I think there's some controversy about YA being given this distinction of being badly written novels because it's for children so language doesn't matter (laughs) or things like that and I don't believe that that's true so in terms of adult and YA I don't see a distinction there. Mm -hmm. And I think young adult and that would be like 13 to what, 18? Isn't that kind of the YA yes. uh, age span? But kids are smart. Yes, they are. You know, they and know. they read up. Mm-hmm. Kids tend to read mm-hmm. up. Writer Madeline Dresden on the difference between writing for young or mature audiences. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.